Well, a song from the baby booming era. Who, who are baby boomers here? How many baby boomers? Yeah, give yourselves a hand, that's fine. A lot of baby boomers here. And that was the era of protests, of freedom, revolution. Baby boomers didn't want anybody telling them what to do. They didn't want signs, signs, everywhere a sign, do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? They wanted their freedom. And you know, there's some signs that are like that, right? They restrict your freedom. I guess we all kind of felt that in COVID, didn't we? Like arrows pointing on the ground, telling you which way to walk. I bristled at that. I didn't like it. But not all signs are meant to be restrictive. This sign, for example, this is a protective sign, right? It tells us to stop. It creates order. If you've ever been into third, I hate the, word, the, the term third world countries, but you know what I mean when I say that. Countries that are not as developed in terms of industry and infrastructure and that sort of thing. You go to one of those countries and they don't have stop signs at all the intersections and it's just chaos. Amazingly, there's not more accidents, but you know, it's meep, 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 and they're all kind of congesting in the intersection, trying to get by each other in these little buggies. And I'm just like, thank God for stop signs, right? It's a good thing. Other signs are just stupid. Like, look at this one. I'd like to see them collect on that fine, right? That's just a stupid sign. But then there's signs that tell you where to go when you need help. Like that sign. It's not telling you do this, don't do that. It's not stupid. It tells you where you need to go to get help. Now, we don't all like to see that sign because that means we got a problem or someone that we love has a problem. But it's an important sign. And you know, this preaching series this summer is about the signs of Jesus. All the sermons this summer are about the signs of Jesus. All of them except one are in the first 11 chapters of John. And John chapter 1 to 11 is actually called the Book of Signs. The last one is the ultimate sign that, that uh, John will tackle at the end of the summer, the resurrection. So what's the main point of all these signs? Well, the main point is this, that the life of heaven has come down to earth. Heaven and earth have intersected in the person of Jesus. And this is really the motto of the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. We'll do a little bit of turning, a little bit of flipping this morning. But John chapter 1, verse 14, kind of gives us the motto, the layout, the outline of the whole book, I believe. <clears throat> and that reads as follows, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the person of Jesus, heaven has come down to earth, and then these signs show us things about Jesus. So each miracle is a, each sign, we learn something about the kingdom, uh, the coming kingdom of God. We learn things about God, we learn things about Jesus, we learn things about the Spirit of God, we learn things about us, and how we relate to God, and how we relate to one another. 
And this theme of heaven meeting earth grows and swells as we move through the book of John. It starts in chapter 1 with the verse that I just read. Then it moves on to Jacob's ladder. This ladder Jesus talks about going up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Heaven and earth have been connected. There's an intersection going on. We then move on to the story I'm going to cover today is the the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. And the wedding is a foreshadowing of the great wedding banquet when Christ will return as the ultimate groom and marry his bride, the church. Man, I've been dwelling on that all week. And it just blows my mind. It's a small explosion, but it has blown my mind. This is followed immediately by the cleansing of the temple where Jesus declares, I am the true temple. The temple was the place where God met humanity, where heaven and earth intersected. Jesus says, I replace that. That's no more. I'm the new temple. And then you fast forward to the end of the book of John on Easter morning when Mary goes to the tomb to find Jesus. And she looks in and there's two angels sitting on the slab where Jesus' body was. One at the foot, one at the head. And this is a reflection of the mercy seat at the heart of the Holy of Holies in the temple, the very place where God would meet his people. So let's dive into this this text this morning. I want to give you my outline. So, we have weddings, wine, woman, washing, and I tried really hard to get another W. I mean, I went into the thesaurus, I googled, you know, word for signs that starts with W, nada. So, we got four W's and an S, the W's, if you will. So let's start in verse 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So let's talk about weddings. Weddings were fascinating in Jesus' time. First, there was a betrothal period. Now, this is more serious than an engagement in our day. If you wanted to break a betrothal, you actually had to enter into divorce proceedings. So they took it very seriously. And at the end of the betrothal, the marriage took place, and the bridegroom, I found this the coolest, the bridegroom and his friends made their way in procession to the bride's home. And this was usually done at night. So you'd have a spectacular torch-lit procession of the groom and the groomsmen going to the bride's house to get her and then lead them back to the groom's home in a a torch-lit procession. It would have been spectacular. And then the wedding celebration. In in Jesus' day, those could last as long as a week. I mean, they knew how to party. Did you know the Old Testament, 10% was devoted to a party every year? I mean, yeah, we got to get on board with that. So this procession would take place, and we're told here that, the, that it took place in the town where Nathaniel came from. It's quite possible that most of the village that Nathaniel came from was there, and several people from neighboring villages as well. That's probably why Mary, Jesus, and the disciples were invited. Nazareth is only three kilometers from Cana, so you could easily walk that in, in under you know, probably 30 or 40 minutes. 
And from what we read of Mary here, it seems by her attitude, by her taking action when the wine runs out, by her telling the servants kind of what to do, she's got some connection with the family. She's friends of the family. Maybe even she's acting as kind of a caterer for this event. It's interesting, just as a side note, that there's no mention of Joseph here. It's probable that he's dead by this time. And so uh, Mary is a widow, and Jesus is carrying a lot of the weight for his family. So what does this mean for us, weddings? Well, at the end of the passage today, it says that the, the author says that um, this was a sign. This whole, this whole wedding, the, the sign at the end, which revealed Christ's glory. And I'm proposing today that there's a number of ways in which Christ's glory is revealed through this account. It's multifaceted. There is an ultimate glory, an ultimate point, but there's a whole bunch of little points that happen in this story. I've already touched upon the fact that Jesus' attendance at this wedding is a foreshadowing of the great wedding that will take place when he returns to claim his bride. Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, all scripture points to me. It's all about me. And so Jesus, I just imagine as he's walking into this wedding, you got to wonder what's on his mind. I'm using some sanctified imagination, but I'm thinking he's walking in saying, this is nothing. Nothing compared to the wedding that's going to take place when I return after my ascension. Throughout the entire New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom and his forgiven, renewed, and redeemed people are his bride. Isn't that beautiful? Forgiven, made new, bought back and redeemed. We're his church, his bride, collectively, right? In John chapter 3, flip over there with me if you would. John chapter 3, verse 27 to 30. Just one chapter after what we're dealing with today. John the Baptist, 27 to 30. Well, you know, this is a sign that sin is alive and well when I've got to pull out glasses to read. 27 to 30. So John has just baptized Jesus. His disciples are starting to ask questions. And John says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater, and I must become less. So there's John talking about Jesus as the bridegroom. We have the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew chapter 25. Right, they're getting ready. It's interesting, it's at night, right? Just like I told you. It's at night, they're getting their lamps ready, their wicks, their oil in the thing. Five of them kind of drop the ball, and the bride, the the procession comes, and they're left behind, and the other five get to go. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and when it's ready, I'll come back and get you and take you to my Father's house. In Jesus' time, these were called insulas, and the the groom would build an extension onto his dad's place, and he would bring his bride to live there, and it would become an extended family. Jesus is using wedding imagery to talk about his second coming and the place that he's preparing for us. In Ephesians 5, 
Paul uses the imagery of marriage for Christ in the church. He says a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. We're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. You fast forward all the way to the end of Revelation when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth coming, and he said, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's all there. Jesus was undoubtedly thinking about this as he entered into this wedding. And this will become more clear as we move through. I want you to take note, though, that the concept of bride in in the New Testament is a collective reality. Right? We live in an individualistic, consumeristic culture, and we think of ourselves as individuals. Not so. You're part of a family. What happens to one happens to us all. Amen? We're accountable to each other. We have to encourage one another. We have to help each other, disciple each other. The bride is collective. We're a local expression of this, but the bride is global. Around the world, there's billions of people meeting today. And the wedding at Cana also, I think, makes it plain that with the arrival of Jesus, the promised wedding renewal has begun. We're living in the betrothal period, folks. Serious business. Open up to uh, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. I'm not going to read this whole thing. Chapter, starting in verse 1. Jesus told them another parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. There it is again. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. But they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, The feast has been prepared. The fattened calf is ready. So listen. Jesus sees this as something that's coming. The betrothal period is on, but he sends his servants out to do what? Who are the servants? We're the servants. What's he sent us out to do? To extend an invitation to people to come to the banquet. This is serious business. We're talking about people going to hell, being shut out of the banquet where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I read a stat that really, it really, I mean, it's, it's crushed me in a lot of ways. That 95% of people in North America will never lead someone to Christ or disciple another person. 95%! I read another stat that crushed my heart. The average time on a cell phone now is 3.48 hours a day. Almost four hours a day. I could disciple eight people a day if I spent that time discipling people. That's 40 people a week I could have, pouring myself into them, helping them to grow. This can't be so. It can't be so. We have to change this as a church. It needs to start here in West Highland. It needs to spread out around the country. We need to change our priorities, change our focus. The banquet is coming. Wine. We know the wine, it's gone. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
It ran out before the end of the feast. Now, this was not just an inconvenience in this culture. This was a social disaster. And the family would have had to suffer with the shame of this for a long time. In a shame culture, running out of wine at a wedding feast would have been shameful. The groom was actually required to provide a feast of a certain standard. To not do so actually opened them up to legal liability. And they could take 50% of the wedding gifts as payment. So Mary's motivation in approaching Jesus was not self-serving. This was to prevent a serious social scandal and embarrassment. Now, we're not really told what Mary expected Jesus to do. I mean, she knew that he was the Messiah. Gabriel came and visited her and told her that, right? She had a virgin birth. That might give you some clues that something special about this guy, right? There's a big star that stopped over the stable when, when Jesus was being born. So she knew There's something about Jesus. So she may have been trying to get him to kind of take action and reveal himself as the Messiah that she knew him to be. She knew he could do something. So she comes to him in desperation. And then Jesus responds. We're into woman. Yeah, you can turn the thing now. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now this phrase, it sounds ruder in the English than it does in the Greek. In the Greek, it literally uh, transliterates, what to me and to you? Like, what's that? why are you getting me involved in this, is really what he's, what he's saying. <clears throat> Yet it's unusual to hear this kind of a language. I mean, we do hear it. There's only one other instance where Jesus addresses Mary in this way, and it's when he's hanging on the cross, and he looks down and he says, woman, this is your son, over to, to, to John, and then John, this is your mother take care of her, right? So there might be a little, a light rebuke in here of her, you know, pushing her agenda on him, um, but it's not as rude as it sounds in the English. But what it does seem to indicate here is that there is a revision of Jesus' relationship to his mother, and by extension to all his earthly relationships as he enters into his public ministry. He's starting to create some separation between his mother and himself. So D.A. Carson writes this. I I like this quote. It sums it up well. Jesus is declaring his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He's embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming, and his only lodestar is his heavenly Father's will. Jesus knows three years where that's leading, and it's, it's time to be about his Father's business in a different type of way. But then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What does this mean? This, sounds, this is a kind of a strange response to, you know, like if my, one of my kids said, hey, Dad, we've, we ran out of orange juice for breakfast. I say, son, daughter, my hour has not yet come. Right? Like that's a bit of a strange response, right? What does that mean? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, it causes the listeners, so Mary and those who are present at the time, and then now us because we're reading this story, It causes us to say, what does this mean? What hour? What happens at that hour? When does this hour take place? So it forces us to be on the lookout for what does this mean, to try to figure it out. And as we move through the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase a few times. In in John chapter 7 it happens a couple of times. In John chapter 8 it happens a couple of times. And then, at last, the time does come and he speaks about it a little bit differently. Let's flip open to John chapter 12. 
what, the rustling of pages or the swiping of phones. Starting in verse 20, And I think this ties in beautifully to the mission of Jesus as well. Uh, Verse 20, he says, Some Greeks, so this is kind of heading into the Passover. People are coming from all over the the known world at the time. And it says, Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. And so Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. So there's people now, there's Gentiles, people coming from other parts of the world who want to meet Jesus. Jesus. How does Jesus interpret this? That the world is starting to come? Right? Well, he says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels. A plentiful harvest of new lives. See, Jesus interprets everything through the lens of dying to himself so that others can experience life. His death, you know, the seed that you plant in the ground that's dead results in a big, huge harvest. That's how Jesus interprets things. And he sees the Greeks coming and the people coming from around the world, and he goes, it's time. My time has come. The hour has come. And then you flip over to John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus' high priestly prayer. And after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. So we see that Jesus, in saying that my time has not yet come, the primary reference point is to his crucifixion, to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. I think it encompasses more than that. I think it It also, you know, you can see him. She's saying, hey, Jesus, turn water, you know, provide wine. Well, wine is a symbol of of, um, God's blessing. It's of joy, of celebration. And he's saying, you know, the the, the great wedding banquet hasn't come yet. It's not here. So why do you want, you know, why are you getting me involved in, in this sort of thing? And so his mom turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Now this is very interesting. I think when Mary's prepared to adjust her understanding to this new reality, this new relationship with him and her, that Jesus is now embarking on this this new chapter of life, of of ministry, with with the Father as the focal, well, the Father's always been the focal point, but it's, it's different now, right? When she bends her mind to this, she comes back to, her. her request is granted. I love this quote. In chapter 2, verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is gently rebuked. In chapter 2, verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. It's kind of like the Canaanite woman. You remember her? She goes to Jesus. Her son or daughter is is demon-possessed and says, Jesus, deliver my kid. And he goes, my ministry right now is just to the Jews not to the Gentiles. And she said, yeah, but don't the dogs even get to eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table? And he goes, I love her faith. She pressed in, she leaned in, she challenged it, and he gives her what she asked for because it was by faith, by faith. So Mary still doesn't know what Jesus will do, 
but she has committed the matter to him and trusts that he will do what's best. Isn't that a great application for us? Do whatever he tells you. When you do whatever Jesus tells you to do, you see amazing things happen. If you don't do what Jesus tells you to do, you don't see amazing things happen. When you step out in faith, you see the miraculous. When you hold back and you, you, know, you, you play it safe, you see nothing. It's time to stop playing it safe. We need to step out. Trust in God in new ways to do God-sized things. So let me ask you today, are you doing what Jesus tells you? Is there something he's telling you to do and you're not doing it, you're stopping, you're holding back, you're resisting? Is there something you are doing that he's telling you to stop? And you're not. You're ignoring him. You need to respond in faith. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can do what he asks you to. The next is washing. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So these jars held around nine gallons each. Uh, you're talking, you know, nine times six is, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of wine. I think it's, uh, one commentator said, this would be a thousand bottles of wine. Not just wine, this is like, high-end French import wine, right? And these stone jars, these are, these are the, they're made of stone because they're impervious or more impervious to becoming unclean. They were used for purification. So open up to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, 1 to 4, here we kind of get a little a glimpse of this. Just pausing as I hear rustling of pages, because when the rustling stops, that means people are there, right? So one day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus, and they noticed that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual hand-washing ceremony before eating. So the Jews, especially the Pharisees, poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Listen, they washed everything, right? They washed their hands before they ate. They washed their hands when they woke up. They washed their hands uh, before prayer. It was here a wash, there a wash, everywhere a wash, wash. Everything's all washed up, and they follow these to the, to the T. And what's happening here is... Well, let's, let's, keep, let's keep moving, then I'll tell you what, what's happening here. So Jesus told them to fill them to the brim, probably so nothing could be added. You can't throw in some, some red powder or dye or something to make it turn red, right? It's right up to the, right up to the top. And uh, he told them to take it to the master of the banquet, and they did so. And the master, he tasted it, uh, and then he calls the bridegroom over, and he says, wow, this is, this is unusual. This is breaking with custom. Uh, usually you bring the... The good stuff out at the front end, and then when people have had too much to drink or their, their, their taste is not that great anymore, uh, you bring out the bad stuff so they can't tell the difference, right? Now, wine in Jesus' day was different than our wine, right? I read a, a paper, they re, 
they reproduced wine in Jesus. They used the same kind of approach and all that kind of stuff. And it came out at 4%, right? Our wine is 12 to 16%. So it's about a third to a quarter of the potency of ours. So you can drink one ounce of our stronger wine an hour and, and, never, and never get drunk because the liver will process one ounce an hour. So they would have had to been drinking. To get drunk, they would have had to been like guzzling four, five, six glasses an hour, right? So it's probably not everybody, like there would be some people doing that, you know, the, the Joe sitting over by the wine thing just like knocking them back, right? But there's other people, you drink the, the, the better wine at the front end and then your palate gets kind of anesthetized to the taste of wine and you can't tell the difference anymore, right? And so there's probably a little bit of, of both of those things uh, going on here. And he says, you saved the best to the last. Now the head steward, he addresses the bridegroom because he's the one who's responsible for the, pe- for the feast, right? It doesn't tell us, does the bridegroom know, it doesn't seem like the bridegroom knows what's going on. Uh, it's, it's unclear. But he's probably not well off, right? He probably doesn't have a lot of money because if he did, he wouldn't have run out of wine in the first place. So this would have been like huge for him, right? That he's in a tight spot you know, social shame, embarrassment, and Jesus produces a thousand bottles of really good wine. I mean, this is a huge wedding gift. I don't know what a thousand bottles of wine costs, but it's a lot of money, right? And it's also saved him of the social embarrassment. And a lot of times people say, you know, gee, God's too, I'm not going to pray about that little silly thing, right? God's too busy for, for my little tiny prayer, my little silly prayer that, you know, he's got bigger things to worry about. Well, let me tell you, Jesus cares about every intricate detail of your life. He may not always say yes, but he cares. He cares that you've hurt your eye. He cares that you've, you know, you broke your arm. He cares about a loved one that's sick. He just cares. And he will respond. It may be yes, no, or not right now, but he does, he does care. So through this, what we see, I think, is Jesus revealing himself here as the ultimate bridegroom. The responsibility of the bridegroom was to provide for the wedding. And by taking on the bridegroom's responsibility to provide wine, and in a spectacular style, I must say, he reveals himself as the perfect bridegroom-to-be, the one who will never fail you or let you down. Another application of this for us is the function of the law. You know, the water and the stone jars represent the old order of Jewish thinking, the old law, right? And by using the water jars, Jesus is giving a sign that God is doing a new thing from within the old Jewish system. He's bringing purification to the world in a whole new way. It's the end of religiosity. We need to be in relationship with God, but we're not following a bunch of, of rules, and the last application from this little part here, I think, is that the transformation from water to, to wine is meant to signify the effect that Jesus can have and still have today on our lives. He came to give us life and to give it to the full. How many people know our definition of a disciple? If you do, if I came down and asked you to recite it, would you be able to do it? John could, yeah, awesome. 
Okay, it's, it's, in the, it's in the foyer. Go look at it after the service. You need to get this down because we need to know what we're trying to make. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. That's our job as a church. Sometimes we get busy, uh, busy playing church, but he wants to transform us. And our definition is this. A, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. We're being changed by Jesus. And we're actually participating in helping that change take place in other people's lives. That's what disciple-making is. So we need to get on board with that and stop playing church and start, start being the church. Amen? Like 95% have never discipled somebody. We're going to step into the great banquet and there's going to be questions about that, right? You spent four hours on your phone and you never discipled anybody? Come on, we got to do better than that. Verse 11, the last verse. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John brings the record of this miracle to a close by what's called an inclusio. So it's, it's a bookending of, of terminology. It's a literary device that bookends the passage. So in this case, it's Cana of Galilee. That happens in verse 1. It happens in verse 11. So you know this is kind of a unit of thought. It's one story. That's why we ended in verse 11 instead of me going into verse 12. In some Bibles, it's, it, 12 looks like it's part of that first section, but it's, but it's not. And so John says that this was the first sign that Jesus performed. This is a significant word. The, the Greek word for first is arche which means a beginning, right? It's where we get the word archetype, right? The first, the first type. Archaeology, right? So this is the same word that's used in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Open up to that. I'm testing your sword drilling today. John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, there's that word arche. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. There's arche twice in those first two verses. Right? Jesus is the arche. He is the beginning. He is the alpha and the omega. <clears throat> Everything that was made has been made through him and for him. And so this is really Jesus' way of saying that Jesus is the creator. The one who can change water into wine is the same one who made water and vines. It's the way of saying that the new creation has started. 1 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. John's communicating that through here. There's a story in the Greek mythology about Dionysus. And Dionysus was the god of wine. And what the Greeks believed was that Dionysus sent the rain, and Dionysus provided the vines, and then when the rain fell on the vines and the grapes came out, that was Dionysus doing that. And then when you took the wines and you put them in a barrel to ferment, that was Dionysus doing that too. So it was all attributed back to Dionysus. They'd never met Dionysus, They'd never seen Dionysus. He was just a figment of their imagination. But this was real stuff, right? You remember Paul and Barnabas, where they thought that that was Zeus and Hermes. 
right? They have to address it in Romans chapter 1, that they've made God's created things, like statues and that sort of thing. Paul does it at the Areopagus. He looks at all the statues of these gods, right? This is real stuff. Still real today. You have Hinduism and Buddhism, and this is still going on, folks. And so I'm wondering, how would a Greek person, remember Jesus said the Greeks were coming to see Jesus, right? And he said, my hour has come. How would the Greeks have read this story? Well, this would have blown everything up for them, right? He skips over the whole process. He doesn't need the rain, and he doesn't need the vine, and he doesn't need the grapes. He just goes from water to wine, right? He shows himself superior to the Greek gods of the culture surrounding them of that, of that day. I brought this book today because, you know, sometimes people say, ah, oh, Jesus just, this story was made up because of Dionysus, right? This is the Christians taking the story of Dionysus and, make it, and Christianizing it, right? Dionysus was never, never made himself known. Jesus is a physical human being in the annals of history who people touched and saw and heard. So this book here is called Jesus Outside the New Testament, an introduction to the ancient evidence. Look it. That's all outside the New Testament. Reams and reams and reams of it, talking about the historical Jesus. There's nothing about Dionysus like this, right? They even acknowledge that Jesus did miracles, but they said it was the, the, the devil that made him do it or gave him the power to do it. So they didn't even deny his miracles. They, they acknowledged his miracles, but said it was the devil that, that did it, not God. So the purpose of the signs then are to reveal Jesus' glory. They're not designed to entertain us. They're not designed to show off his power. They are, as again D.A. Carson says, displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that can be perceived with the eyes of faith. This first sign is the start of Jesus incrementally revealing who he is to those who will believe. Many at the wedding saw the sign. Many tasted the effects of the sign. But it was only the disciples who perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign that were able to put their faith in him. And it says that they believed. Now this is an interesting statement because you know, they believe, but as you move through the scriptures, they believe more. So belief is not a one and done thing. Belief is incremental, right? It grows, it changes, it deepens. Remember the guy that said, you know, Jesus said, you know, he came to him and said, heal my daughter, she's dying. And he goes, you know, he says something about, you know, do you believe? He goes, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my belief, but help me in my unbelief. Aren't we all like that? We believe, but we're weak. We believe, but we have struggles. We have doubts. So he says, I believe, but help me. And so belief grows. It becomes more robust and more firm, stronger and deeper, like a tree growing roots down into the ground. And so that should encourage us. We don't have to believe, you know, a mustard seed starts, and then it grows into a huge tree, right? So in conclusion, I just want to touch upon three things. Short things, really. There's a great wedding banquet coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Some of you here, maybe 
This is the first time you've heard. Maybe you haven't believed in Jesus yet. You haven't seen Jesus' glory. You haven't seen who he really is, that he is the creator, that he can heal, that he can bring wholeness and fullness, and then that he died on the cross to pay the price that you rightly deserve to pay. And then to prove that he had the power and the authority to do that, he rose from the grave, the greatest miracle of all, and he's coming back. He's coming back to claim his bride. Are you ready? As a Christian, as someone who already believes, are you ready? Are you frittering your time away on phones four hours a day? Or are you doing what you're told, as Mary said, making disciples? That's what you're told to do, to become a disciple and to make disciples. That's it. Everything else is superfluous. Necessary, but superfluous. If you're not making disciples, you're being disobedient. End of story. That's all there is to it. Now, if you want help in that, we're willing to help you. That's what I'm paid to do. I'm pay, you know, there's lots of people on staff who will come alongside you, will help you to grow, learn how to disciple others, get you started. We'll help to disciple you as well. You need to be ready. There's going to be questions. And you're going to be standing there at the gate with your phone in your hand and no disciples in tow. Lastly, Jesus wants to transform us. But you have to be willing to participate. Right? If they would have said, you know, Jesus told, he gave him a step to take. It was a faith step. Fill him up with water. If they didn't do that, nothing would have happened. We wouldn't be here reading this story today. And then he said, take it to them and, you know, scoop it out. I wonder, it doesn't tell us where it changed, right? But I'm wondering if these guys scooped it out and they're kind of walking over and it's like I'm going to the, the master of the house and it's water, right? Like, when did it change? I don't know. But maybe it didn't change until the guy actually took hold of it. That takes faith. You've got to step out and trust that Jesus is going to come through for you. And you need to participate in your own transformation. You need to invest as much time on the phone into your own life and your own spiritual growth and development. I actually got, I got a new phone. iPhone 13. And I, honestly, when I, when I went to order this, I actually had a moment where I thought, I don't want a phone anymore at all. I don't want anything. I, don't, I just, I'll have a beeper. Or a flip phone, right? Uh, but because of the nature of our day, it, that's, it is what it is, right? I mean, work and all that kind of family, it's, it's convenient to have. And I don't mean just to harp on phones. There's other things that we're doing to wasting our time instead of doing the thing that we're called to do. So we need to get busy about Jesus' business and not just playing church, right? Let's do church. Let's be the church to the people of this city and beyond. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your example. There's so much in this passage, I, don't, I just scratched the surface. But in this, you reveal your glory of, as the one who creates, the one who transforms, the one who's the bridegroom, the perfect bridegroom. And so we thank you for all of this, that you loved us so much 
that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and not perish. We give you praise and we give you thanks. Help us, Lord, to be about your business, making disciples. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for a challenging message today. I was richly blessed. It's amazing how the gospel of John just continues to bless and bless. And the more we see of Jesus, again, we believe. Again, we believe. And so now may our Lord Jesus, who is the creator of all things, who transformed water into wine, may he continually transform all of us by the power of the Holy Spirit as you and I wait in hope for that day when the one who sits on the throne will say, behold, I make all things new. Amen.